From the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, it's the Soro Podcast, Science Out Loud. I'm your host, John Mangles. Well, good evening, everyone. And on behalf of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, welcome to Keep It Great, the state of Lake Erie. I'm John Mangles, the museum's science communications officer and your moderator of tonight's program. If you're dragging a little bit this week uh, because of the time change, or if, like me, you stayed up a little too late last night watching the uh, election returns, uh, we've got the perfect cure for you. We're going to get the blood flowing to those brain cells over the next 90 minutes with stimulating conversation and provocative ideas and some thorny issues and hopefully some creative solutions. I'll tell you more about the format of our program in just a second, but let me start first with a few thank yous. First, we really, truly appreciate the support of the sponsors of tonight's symposium, EnviroScience, TetraTech, and our own trustee, Janet Neary. Their generosity has made this program possible. Second, a very profound thank you to photographer Linda Butler, whose exhibit, Lake Erie on the Edge, is on display right outside the doors of Merch Auditorium in our Faywood Gallery. Hopefully you've had a chance to see Linda's stunning photos. They were taken over a period actually of years at locations around, on, and in some cases very high above Lake Erie. And they help remind us what an amazing asset Lake Erie really is. Linda's exhibit and her passion for protecting the lake were the catalyst for tonight's program. Linda. Please stand and let us thank you. Thanks also to our exhibitors. Please check out the displays after the program if you haven't already. And uh, there's an, a very interesting reptile named Ethel that I hope you all get uh, a chance to meet. Um, the uh, Curator, caretaker of Ethel will, uh, will be talking to us about her in, in just a few minutes. Finally, I want to thank all of you here in the audience tonight and those of you listening in on the Museum Sora podcast. Your presence and your attention are the critical first step on the path toward action. You know, Thomas Jefferson many, many years ago reminded us that Democracy depends on an informed citizenry. And tonight, we're going to learn together, and hopefully we'll leave with a better understanding of the critical issues that are facing Lake Erie and what we can all do about them. We've got a terrific lineup of panelists, and my job is to help set the table for them by covering about 20,000 years of the history of Lake Erie in uh, 10 minutes or less. So let's buck buckle up and do that. Um, by a show of hands, let me ask, how many of you have actually been within sight of the lake in the last week? Wow, so most of you. So we do see Lake Erie practically every day. You see it in the shots from the blimp when you're watching the Browns game on Sundays. Those of us who commute on the shoreway look out the window of our car as we drive by in the morning and the evening. It's just always there, and I think that familiarity actually leads us to take it a little bit for granted. It's easy to forget that it is an incredible, finite, and fragile resource. It's a cliche, but nothing makes you appreciate water like a desert. And I was reminded of how precious 
Lake Erie and the other Great Lakes are and how fortunate we are to live near them. When I spent time earlier this year in the Afar Desert in Ethiopia documenting the museum's human origins research. The Afar region is one of the hottest, driest, harshest places on earth. And it's amazing how much time and effort that the Afar people spend every single day searching for water so that they and their animals can survive. The Afar people walk for hours to get to water. And donkeys, like you see in the upper photo there, are a pretty familiar sight on the roads and the trails there, lugging those plastic jugs of their very precious water. Here, with Lake Erie and the four of the Great Lakes, we have the world's largest freshwater supply literally at our doorsteps. Six quadrillion gallons. That's enough water to fill one and a half billion Olympic-sized swimming pools. 18% of the planet's freshwater supply is in the Great Lakes. 90% of the freshwater in the United States is in the, in the Great Lakes. 40 million Americans and Canadians depend on the Great Lakes for our water. Although they seem like a permanent fixture on the landscape, the lakes really have only been with us for the blink of an eye in geological time scales. Much of North America, as you probably know, were covered by massive glaciers during the last ice age, the Wisconsin Ice Age. And when the climate began to warm about 20,000 years ago, the retreat of those miles-thick glaciers left huge depressions, which the meltwater from those glaciers then filled. Lake Erie and the southern tip of Lake Michigan were the first bodies of water that were revealed when those ice sheets withdrew. And the lake's boundaries and drainage patterns continued to change over thousands of years as the land slowly rebounded from the great weight of those glaciers. The lakes reached their current outlines and current water levels about 3,500 to 4,000 years ago, around the same time that Stonehenge was being built in England and the Bronze Age was just beginning in China. Today, Lake Erie is the 13th largest lake in the world by surface area, but it's only the fourth largest of the Great Lakes. It's 241 miles long, 57 miles wide, with a shoreline that covers four US states and the Canadian province of Ontario. Lake Erie is the warmest, the shallowest, and the southernmost of the Great Lakes. It's only averaging about 62 feet deep. Its deepest point, which is kind of at that upper right corner in the bluest area of that image, um, is about 210 feet. That's uh, around uh, a location between Chautauqua and, and Erie, Pennsylvania. But even that point, that 210 feet deep, is far shallower, six times shallower than the deepest Great Lake, which is Lake Superior. The disparity between the depths, as you see in that image, between the western basin, which is very shallow, and the eastern basin, which is a lot deeper, uh, is due to um, the, the foundation, which is softer shale on the eastern end and much harder limestone on the western end, which was a lot more impervious to the great weight and the scouring power of those glaciers. Lake Erie, as anyone who lives in Northeast Ohio knows, is also the first of the Great Lakes to freeze in the winter because it is so shallow. Lake Erie was discovered and named by indigenous peoples who built settlements, trading outposts, and religious structures along the, sh the, the shores of the lake, even before it reached its final confirmations. 
the museum's curator of archaeology, Dr. Brian Redmond, and his team regularly excavate some of these prehistoric Native American sites, including this one, which is Burl Orchard in Lorain County. And Dr. Redmond has found numerous artifacts and remnants of the structures that these early Native Americans built. And they understood long, long ago what we know today, which is that the Great Lakes, particularly Lake Erie, supports an extraordinary amount of biodiversity. More than 3,500 species of plants and animals inhabit the Great Lakes Basin, living in a stunning variety of habitats, forests, marshes, wetlands, grasslands, prairies, and dunes. And many of those species are native to the region, and unfortunately, many are now endangered along with these habitats that they occupy. The arrival of European settlers and the colonization of North America obviously brought profound changes to the Great Lakes and to Lake Erie in particular. The lake briefly became a battlefield during the War of 1812. We all remember our Ohio history where Oliver Hazard Perry and the US Naval Fleet defeated the British in the Battle of Lake Erie, which marked a turning point in that war. Commercial fishing and shipping on the lake rapidly increased during the 19th century and vast areas of wetlands were drained and converted to farm fields. Completion of the Erie Canal in 1825 connected the lake with the valuable grain markets on the East Coast, good for the Midwest, but it also provided an early route for invasive species to enter the lake. During the 19th century and the 20th century, commercial and industrial development on the lake and commercial uses of the waterway itself dramatically increased. Those activities had tremendous economic benefits for us, of course, but they also carried a heavy environmental price. By the 1960s, Lakes Erie, Michigan, and Ontario were severely contaminated. Factory and agricultural runoff and municipal sewage spilled directly into the lakes with little regulatory oversight. In 1968, when Life Magazine sent photographer Alfred Eisenstadt to document the state of the Great Lakes, he captured shocking images. There were iceberg-like soap suds floating down the Cuyahoga River and rusted truck bodies that were piled up to create the break walls in the Cleveland port. Lake Erie especially seemed to have reached an environmental tipping point. Time Magazine in 1969 called Lake Erie a gigantic cesspool and comedian Johnny Carson joked that it was the place that fish went to die. A fire on the Cuyahoga River, as most of us know, in June 1969, finally galvanized national concern and triggered action. It wasn't the first time the river had burned, but the national news of the fire sparked reforms, including the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, passage of the Clean Water Act, protecting the Great Lakes in 1972, and coordinated efforts between Canada and the United States to manage the Great Lakes water quality issues and reduce the amount of phosphorus entering the lakes. With those actions and others, conditions on Lake Erie gradually improved during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. But in recent years, things seem to have taken a turn for the worse again. Harmful algal blooms, which we all have heard about, have resurged in the lake. Invasive species continue their onslaught. 
Climate change is forecast to alter the lake's water and temperature levels. And there's been legislative disagreement about how to tackle Lake Erie's problems, as well as recent attempts to reduce environmental regulations and eliminate funds for research, cleanup, and restoration. Perhaps the starkest warning of Lake Erie's decline comes from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and its counterpart, Environment Canada. Those two organizations regularly assess the current and future health of the Lake Erie ecosystem, and in the latest assessment released last year, Lakes Huron, Michigan, Ontario, and Superior were rated either good or fair and unchanging, but unfortunately, Lake Erie is in the worst shape of the five Great Lakes, rated poor and deteriorating. With that content and context, I'm going to explain our format a little bit and introduce our panel of experts. I'm going to spend a few minutes posing questions to each of our individual panelists about their area of expertise. Then we're going to open it up to you in the audience and give you a chance to join the conversation. Our first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Reuter. His career as a Lake Erie researcher has spanned more than 40 years, beginning as a graduate student at Ohio State University's Stone Laboratory in 1971 and lasting until his retirement in 2017, but he's not really retired. He directed the Ohio Sea Grant Stone Lab and the Center for Lake Erie Area Research for 30 years. In those roles, he mentored thousands of students, wrote more than 150 scientific papers, and was the principal investigator on grants totaling more than $50 million. He's led many regional, national, and international science panels advising on Great Lakes policy. Dr. Reuter continues to serve as chair of the Board of Trustees for the Nature Conservancy in Ohio and as a member of the Board of Trustees of the Cleveland Water Alliance. Dr. Reuter, will you join me on the stage, please? Dr. Laura Johnson is a research scientist, assistant professor of biology, and director of the National Center for Water Quality Research at Heidelberg University in Tiffin, Ohio. Created by Congress, the center has been at the forefront of the algae crisis in Northwest Ohio. Dr. Johnson investigates factors that influence the water quality of lakes, rivers, and streams throughout the Great Lakes. She earned her PhD in biology from the University of Notre Dame in 2008 and joined Heidelberg University in 2013. Dr. Johnson? Dr. Kristen Stanford is the Education and Outreach Coordinator for The Ohio State University's Stone Laboratory. She's been involved in Lake Erie water snake conservation for almost 20 years and has served as the recovery coordinator of that effort since 2003. Dr. Stanford is a board member of the Lake Erie Islands Conservancy and board chair of the Lake Erie Islands Nature and Wildlife Center. She was named a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recovery champion for her work with Lake Erie water snakes and received the Ohio Division of Wildlife Diversity Award. You might remember her from a particularly notorious episode of the Discovery Channel's Dirty Jobs where host Mike Rove learned just how foul-tempered Lake Erie water snakes can be. Dr. Stanford earned her bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees from Northern Illinois University. Dr. Stanford. And last but hardly least, Dr. David Kriska 
is the restoration ecologist for the Cleveland Museum of Natural History's Natural Areas Division, specializing in rare plant and animal surveys and wetland restoration. Dr. Kriska joined the museum in 2003 and has been working in the natural history field for more than a quarter of a century. Since 2008, Dr. Kriska has helped the Natural Areas Division acquire 2,000 of its total 10,000 acres of nature preserves, which protect numerous endangered, threatened, or rare plant and animal species that reflect our region's remarkable biological diversity. Dr. Kriska is a member of the National Areas Association and regularly gives seminars and presentations on the ecology of Northern Ohio. Dr. Kriska? Let's start with Dr. Reuter. Dr. Reuter, you are the dean of Lake Erie researchers. You are our go-to guy for the big picture about the lake. Um, each of you do have microphones, so. Um, let me ask you, how did, how did we get here? We seem to be doing pretty well in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and suddenly we see this downturn. What has happened? It, well, you're absolutely right. It's pretty easy for us to track Lake Erie's demise getting worse every year up till about 1970, maybe 1970. We stabilized it between 70 and 75. Between 75 and 81, great improvements. We hit our target for reducing phosphorus in 1981. Uh, 1954, we had formed the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. The combination of good fisheries management and hitting our target reduction, which was a 60% reduction in the amount of phosphorus coming in, turned Lake Erie to the walleye capital of the world. Things were good until about the mid-1990s. And from the mid-1990s till the present, we've seen an increase in the amount of phosphorus coming into the lake. So the things that we had done in the 70s to solve the problem, we focused then on sewage treatment plants. That was 70% of the phosphorus. Today, 85, 87% of the phosphorus is coming from agricultural runoff. And we haven't done anything at this point to improve the situation. So in the earlier set of problems, we really were dealing mostly with what we call point source pollution. Exactly. And now we're dealing with non-point source, which means it's much more diverse, much harder to kind of figure out how to stop the flow. Exactly. We were focused on maybe 20 power plants, in fact, I'm sorry, uh, sewage treatment plants. When you look at the top 12 sewage treatment plants that flow into Lake Erie, that's essentially 95% of the sewage that comes in. Uh, when we look at agricultural runoff, the Maumee watershed at the western end of the lake is the largest watershed in all the Great Lakes, drains four million acres of agricultural land. Uh, the amount of phosphorus that comes in out of that river, as a comparison, in 2008, 3,800 tons came in, about 87% of that from agricultural runoff. The Cuyahoga River right here put in 452 tons. So 3,800 to 452 gives you an ex sort of a, you can see the magnitude of the agricultural problem. And in that watershed, you're dealing with about 15,000 farmers instead of 20 power or sewage treatment plants. Harmful algal blooms have gotten the majority of the attention and, and, and probably deservedly so, but you have got uh, a list of the big six problems and algal blooms are only one of those six. The others are, um, excessive nutrient loading, dead zones or hypoxia, invasive species, 
sediment loading, and climate change. That's a pretty tough list. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, compared to where we were in the 60s, how does it look now? Are you more worried now than you were then? I'm definitely more worried now than I was in the 60s. Uh, recognizing the 60s, I'm a, I'm a young guy. I'm, I'm looking at this, <laughs> and, and we're, 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 when somebody said that we needed to reduce the amount of phosphorus coming in from 29,000 metric tons down to 11, in reality, I'm thinking there's no way we do that. But we had uh, President Nixon and uh, Trudeau signed the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. That allows scientists on the U.S. and the Canadian side to work together to come up with targets. We had the Clean Water Act passed that allowed us to regulate point sources, the sewage treatment plants. Today, we've been working on this problem. We've known that the phosphorus was coming from agriculture uh, for over 10 years. We keep getting more and more data to allow us to pinpoint the problem, to better understand the problem. We also know the things that need to be done, but the agricultural community is working very hard to have that only be done voluntarily, and we've also got lots and lots of data now showing that it's not going to happen voluntarily. You do not think we're going to get there with strictly voluntary actions? Uh, give you some examples. Uh, between 2015 and 2017, this is the most recent two-year period, we've seen zero change in the implementation of voluntary practices. 15% of the farmers that were uh, inserting phosphorus, one of the things that we, we recommend that they do, are now no longer inserting phosphorus and 15% of the farmers who weren't inserting phosphorus are now inserting it. So the bottom line is we saw zero change. Why have those who were inserting it, meaning bearing, bearing it, getting it below ground where it won't leach out, at least not as easily, why, why would they have stopped doing that? I don't have the answer to that question. Uh, we've also surveyed the farmers and essentially found that one-third of them we think will do are, are doing the right thing. One-third would do the right thing if given more information, but the final third, there's no way they're going to do it. They're, they're, they're just, it's essentially over my dead body. And, and we need for them to do these actions. So, but we also have other data, not just the fact that we haven't, we've seen zero change in the last, last two years. Uh, we can compare to, the, to a program in Michigan. This is a voluntary program. It's a very good program. It's not tough enough in that the things that farmers are encouraged to do are not strict enough or rigid enough to get us the reductions that we need, which is a 40% reduction. But that program has existed for 20 years, and there are only about 10% of the farmers that have gotten into it. Would a carrot and stick approach work here? Would, would incentives as well as regulations help, do you think? We have only three alternatives. Uh, voluntary, incentives, and regulations. Uh, incentives would definitely help. The, the farming community is very used to dealing with incentives on buffer strips and, and various conservation practices. Uh, 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 um, 
cover crops and those kinds of things. So incentives would help, but I don't think we have enough money to do it strictly with incentives. And most good agricultural economists will tell you that the most effective incentive programs are programs that also have equally effective disincentives. And on the farming side, we are, you, you talk about carrot and stick, and we've been operating with only carrots and no sticks. Our partnership with Canada has really been a, a great help to the state of Lake Erie. Uh, we've obviously had some bumps in our re relationship with our friends to the north of late. Um, what's your sense of how they're feeling about uh, the partnership now? Uh, I, I was the uh, U.S. chair of a, uh, uh, the task team, U.S. and Canada, so I had a Canadian counterpart uh, that uh, came up with our new targets the amount that we need to reduce phosphorus coming into the lake to allow us to uh, greatly reduce the harmful algal blooms and quite frankly uh, greatly improve your dead zone here in the central basin both both of those things uh, great lakes water quality agreement originally signed in 72 modified in 78 83 87 and 2012. the 2012 uh, uh, modifications formed 10 annexes or annexes uh, each focused on a particular issue the annex that uh, dr. Johnson and I have been most involved with is the nutrient annex trying to reduce the amount of phosphorus coming in Canadians are every bit as involved in this as we are their largest loader or the, the river on the Canadian side that puts in the most phosphorus would be the Thames that flows into Lake St. Clair and then down into, into Lake Erie. Together we identified 14 priority tributaries. These are the tributaries that put in the most phosphorus. But quite frankly, none of those compare to the Maumee. The, the Maumee is about four times larger than the next loader, and the next largest loader would also be here in Ohio, the Sandusky. Maumee putting in 3,800 tons, the Sandusky putting in about 1,100 tons, and then you know down to the Cuyahoga, which is a priority tributary, but only 450 tons. The Mummy is kind of the super highway that accelerates all that into the lake. We're going to take a, a deeper dive, no pun intended, into algal blooms with Dr. Johnson here in a moment. Um, I, I want to switch just briefly to a couple of other problems. Invasive species are something we've heard a lot about. Can you give us some sense sort of the state of play with invasive species? Have the populations of, for example, quagga mussels and zebra mussels stabilized, or are they declining, or are they increasing? And what else do we have to worry about out there? Uh, essentially we've had 194 invasive species enter the Great Lakes. Uh, the zebra mussel is the one that probably people focus the most on. We found the first one at Stone Lab October 15, 1988. One year later, and recognize you have to understand why this happened, that the, the zebra mussel is a sm small clam about as big or a mussel, but looks like a clam about as big as your thumbnail. It's a filter feeder, so it sucks water in, filters the particles, the algae, the bugs out, uh, and, and then excretes clear water. 
uh, Lake Erie has the most nutrients, the most algae, the most zooplankton. It's the most productive of the Great Lakes. So there was a lot of food available in Lake Erie for zebra mussels. So we found the first zebra mussel October 15, 1988 at Stone Lab. One year later, October 1989, the density at Hen Island in the Western Basin had reached 233,000 per square meter of bottom. Uh, wow. Just an absolute explosion. Uh, that's only one. Greatly uh, cleared up Lake Erie, didn't clean it up, but the lake became more clear. We had eight rare and endangered species of aquatic plants emerge in Putten Bay Harbor because light was now penetrating to the bottom and they were in the seed bank in that location. Along comes the round goby, which I'm sure Dr. Stanford will talk about and the impact that that's had on uh, endangered species. But the, the, the round goby came along and we thought, you know, finally there's an answer because we have one endangered species. Round goby decided that it loved to eat zebra mussels. Uh, but in the process, it picked up the contaminant burden from the zebra mussels, transferred it to smallmouth bass, and the contaminant burden in smallmouth bass doubled uh, as a result of that. So there's a lot that could be said, and now we're in the process of, uh, essentially, it's in the, in the central basin here, it's very hard to find zebra mussels because they've all been replaced by quagga mussels, same genus, different species. Illustrating once again just how difficult it is once a natural system is, is out of balance to get it back in. Exactly. You, you want to keep them out. Once they're in, you can't really remove them. Can we keep Asian carp out? Great question. Uh, we're very First, why are we concerned on Lake Erie? So, uh, Lake Erie has the largest fishery of any of the Great Lakes. In fact, uh, if you go back to 1969, one of the years, uh, between 1915 and 1970, uh, 40 of those 55 years, Lake Erie produced more fish for human consumption than the other four Great Lakes combined, including 1969 when the Cuyahoga River burned. They weren't the species that we wanted. The walleye fishery was very poor in those days. So uh, the reason we're concerned, we have this giant fishery, we're concerned about the uh, uh, Asian carp getting in, and this is primarily the silver carp, the one that you see jumping. That's the one that'll cause the greatest problem. That fish uh, likes large tributaries to spawn in. Uh, so what's the largest tributary to the Great Lakes? The Maumee River. Uh, it also is a filter feeder. It's not going to be eating small fish. It's going to be swimming through the water and filtering the algae out of the water as it, as it feeds and filtering the zooplankton out of the water in which lake has the most algae and the most zooplankton? Lake Erie. So we've got the right places for them to spawn, the right food for them to eat. Uh, they are not going to eliminate the perch and the walleye and the smallmouth bass populations, but every place they have invaded, they have rapidly become 50 to 90 percent of the fishery biomass. So the concern is that we'd still have a walleye population out here, but it would probably be reduced by at least half and maybe by 90 percent. Climate change is the wild card in just about everything that we have talked about and will talk about tonight. 
clearly it's going to affect water levels, water temperatures, and a lot of other things. Are we already seeing the impact of that? Absolutely we are, and this would be a good fee. I'm going to hand this to Dr. Johnson here for part of this answer, maybe. The, the, uh, we've seen, uh, well, let me say it a different way. Uh, most of you would understand that when we have a gentle rain, you get very little agricultural runoff. And when it's not raining, uh, you get zero agricultural runoff. Uh, when we look at the Maumee River, for instance, uh, we can now say that about 10% or 9% of the phosphorus that comes in is coming from point sources. About 85%, uh, 87% is coming from agricultural runoff. Gentle rains are not creating that. When you have the severe storms, the storms that produce more than two inches of rain in a 24-hour period, those are the storms that produce a huge amount of agricultural runoff. And the frequency of those storms is up somewhere between 37 and 53 percent, depending on the data sets that we look at. And, and that means you're going to get a lot more runoff from those storms. And in a minute, Dr. Johnson will tell you how much of the Maumee load comes in during those severe storms. We're seeing a lot more of 100-year and 500-year storms than once every 100 or 500 years, it like, sounds like. Like every two years. <laughs> you know, th let me step back and ask. The, the, the argument about uh, trying to, to address the problems that we're discussing with Lake Erie often gets pitched to be economy versus ecology. It's, it's money versus the animals in the lake. You think that's a false dichotomy. Explain to me why you, why you think that. Lake Erie is the best example in the world of why that is not true. Uh, it was obviously expensive to clean up Lake Erie the first time back in the 1970s. And we heard from many, many industries and businesses and, and the, the sewage treatment industry that we can't do this. It's going to be too expensive. But we did it. We hit our targets by, by 1981. The walleye harvest uh, in Lake Erie in 1976 was 112,000 fish. Um, by the mid-1980s, it was up to 5 million. Uh, the number of individual charter, charter fishing businesses went from 35 in 1975 up to over 1,200. Today, when we look at the shoreline, we have uh, about 300 marinas along the Lake Erie shoreline. Uh, in the eight counties in Ohio that border Lake Erie, the tourism, the value of tourism in those eight counties is over $14 billion, and there are over 125,000 jobs associated just with tourism in those eight counties. Um, again, Lake Erie, perfect example. We had our economy is so driven by Lake Erie in these eight counties, and that's just the tourism side of it, not even thinking the way we use it for transportation, the way we use it for cooling water, the way we use it for drinking water. 12.5 uh, million people living in the watershed and about 11 million people getting drinking water directly from Lake Erie. Uh, so it's, it's uh, we don't, it's not a question of either or, we want both. 
and the things that we want the agricultural community to do, the, the recommendations that we've given them, the guidelines that we've given them, are, we're not trying to reduce agricultural production because quite frankly, we want to keep ag production high. But you can do both. You can keep ag production high and you can bring Lake Erie back. I hope you're right. Thank you so much for those answers. I'm going to turn now to Dr. Johnson, and I, I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the, the algae situation with you. Let's, let's do a little bit of 101 on harmful algae blooms. First of all, what, what is it that makes a harmful algae bloom harmful? Yeah, so there's multiple things that can make an algal bloom harmful. Um, when we normally think about it, we think of uh, toxins that are produced when that bloom is, when that algae, well, this is a cyanobacteria, but when the algae are growing so excessively, right? So what happens in Lake Erie, it's a, a type of cyanobacteria called microcystis, produces a toxin called microcystin. And I'm sure that uh, if you've just heard Jeff speak, he's got a lot of very good statistics on all of these things. But my one statistic that I probably picked up from him is that the, the toxicity of the toxin that's being formed, this microcystin, it's worse than things that you know as poisons like cyanide, right? So it's more toxic than that. That's, that's important. But these blooms can be harmful in other ways as well. And there's other types of cyanobacteria that also form these toxins. But other ways that it can be harmful is if you have a growth of an algae that's producing a growth of bacteria or something like botulism, which we know can influence uh, birds and waterfowl. Uh, you can have uh, nuisance algae, not quite harmful, but also affecting the, how, the smell of the water, how it is if you're trying to go and recreate in it, um, can influence the taste if you're pulling that for drinking water. So there's lots of things about algal blooms that can be affecting um, whether it's toxic, which would be harmful, or nuisance. I put up on the screen some amazing images. Yeah, Most of these yeah. are from uh, NASA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory. Yeah. Um, these are all, I think, from the algal bloom of September 2017, which was not the worst, but certainly looks pretty bad here. You see it at different levels. We've got a satellite view, obviously. We've got an aerial view. Um, this is the Monmouth River on the left, and up close and personal, what harmful algae looks like um, in, in a container. Um, I, I'm going to change that for just a moment and take a look at this, which is a, a summary of the forecasts that your center helps gather data to make of the severity of algal blooms. And my goodness, what has happened since 2008? Yeah, so this is a figure. It shows the bloom severity index. So it's essentially a 0 to 10 number. And if you remember on the previous slide, there was that satellite image of the bloom. And the number is basically a number of how intense that bloom is based off of the satellite imagery. So what you see here is that the first thing is in 2003 is the, when the blooms first came back with concern, right? And that was about a four. So on these days in age, you know, we would say, oh, that wasn't actually all that bad. But back then, that was big enough cause for concern that it really started to rally some, of, especially the lake researchers, into what is happening here? We haven't seen this. This is something we need to really better understand. Since then, essentially every year that you see that as a high bloom severity index is a year where we've had a lot of rainfall. Because since 
around 2002 to 2003, the levels of phosphorus that are coming in have remained steady and what's essentially dictating whether we have a bloom or not is how much volume of that high concentration water is getting into the lake. So one of our largest blooms to today, we thought the largest bloom was 2011. 2011, we had a lot of rain in May. And so we're like, oh yeah, this is a lot of rain in May. We got this really big bloom. Probably never gonna see that again, right? <laughs> and then, you know, we get a couple more years and then you see 2015. Well, 2015, I don't know if you remember, but I'm pretty sure it rained entirely from June through all of July. I um, mean, one really big rainstorm the entire time it felt like. Our lab was incredibly busy because we monitor a lot of the water quality coming from the Maumee River during that time. And it gets very intense when it's flooding. And that was a very intense summer. When you look at 2014, however, um, you know, there was a high bloom, but it wasn't the highest. And I think that's important to note because um, that was the year of the Toledo drinking water crisis. And so what we can see from that this... That was, by the way, 400,000 people without water for days at a time. Exactly, yes. And we can get into all of the reasons why we think that happened, but the point to make here is that the size of the bloom and how toxic the bloom is are not necessarily the same thing. And there's still a lot of research to try and better understand what makes a bloom toxic. The 2015 bloom, which is the largest one we've had since we've been doing this type of monitoring with satellite imagery, was actually not all that toxic. Uh, there, the toxin levels were not nearly as high as what they saw in 2015. So there's a lot of research trying to better understand that so we could hopefully get to a point where we could forecast both bloom size and toxicity, but we're not quite there with the toxicity. Uh, luckily, I think that there's been a big funding initiative that's come into the region to be able to look at that with a collaboration of folks, including um, Ohio Sea Grant, Stone Lab, um, Noah Glorel, and all the researchers on the lake that you usually think of that are doing this stuff. But what we're seeing from this chart, if I'm hearing you right, is that even if we kept phosphorus levels constant or reduced them, weather and climate are driving this to a large extent. Well, you know, I'm a scientist, so nothing's all that simple. Um, what I'm saying it, it is that right now what we're seeing is a consistent amount of runoff anytime it rains. So what our actions on the ground are going to do would be, would be to make it so the concentrations in that water would be lower. Um, we are not seeing that happening yet. So as of now, our bloom size is dictated by weather, you know. But what we're trying to do and what we're pushing to do is lead to a point where that's not the case, right? Where that when water runs across the agricultural field and gets into the waterway, it doesn't have as much phosphorus in it. Help us understand at, at the water plant um, why this can't be filtered or otherwise removed. Is there a certain point at which you just can't get it out of the water supply? Well, they do actually remove an awful lot of it. Um, one of the, the issues surrounding the 2014 bloom and why there was a, a water crisis to begin with was because the bloom formed very quickly and much earlier than it normally had. It was in early August and all the past years the bloom when it got very large and concerning was more like in September and it, and it formed right over the drinking water intake for Toledo. Um, they were not uh, expecting it so they hadn't up their filtration. They're, they, what they normally do is increase the amount of granular activated carbon to help absorb some of that toxin. They have to use chemicals that will break open the cells to get the toxin out of the algae itself to be able to absorb it. Um, 
But that's the same sort of thing that's in like your Brita filter, right? So this is pretty well-known technologies. It's good at cleaning things out. You just have to use a lot of it if the load is very big. And so part of the trick is knowing, well, what are we dealing with? Do we have enough to do that or not? I've heard estimates in terms of how much money during a big bloom period of time that Toledo has to, to spend on uh, filtering toxins out, something in the, the range of like $10,000 a day, right, in terms of, you know, if it's a lot of toxin, it costs a lot of money to do this type of removal. Um, some of the very savvy drinking water plants, like um, Salina, Ohio, for instance, where Green Lake St. Mary's is, they do something where they try and filter out as much of the material as possible before they try and, and lyse all that cells and then remove the toxins so that it's not as much on the filtration side. But you have to have very uh, up-to-date and modern facilities for that. Salina is much, much smaller than Toledo is, and so doing those types of upgrades is not nearly as complicated. This has largely been a problem for the western and much shallower part of Lake Erie. Obviously, the Maumee River is near there, sure. uh, and it is a shallow area. Us central and east enders are sort of um, looking over and saying, boy, we're glad that's not happening with us. Can we expect to continue to be um, escaping this, or do you think it's going to gradually become a larger problem and a more eastern problem, not just a western problem? Well. That's a bit hard to answer because I would be predicting a, a future uh, that's worse than I would like to say positive and say it gets better. But I, I could add that when you look at something like the 2011 bloom, the bloom doesn't just stay in the Western Basin. It moves. And in 2011, it moved and it hovered right around the whole Cleveland area. Um, if that sort of thing happens, then although we don't believe that the bloom actually formed in the Central Basin, formed in the Western Basin and moved, that can still create some challenges for the drinking water plant here in Cleveland. You know, the difference here um, is that there are more intakes for Cleveland uh, for their drinking water than there is for Toledo. So if they start to have problems, they can actually switch off which pumps they're using and what intake they're using to uh, better handle any potential toxin issues, because they have to deal with that for other things as well that could be happening throughout the Central Basin. But the other thing is the Central Basin, you'll oftentimes also see blooms form, and I'm sure you, you guys might have experienced those on the beaches, where because of the low oxygen in the bottom of the basin, you see this upwelling and a bloom that forms right around where some of those drinking water intakes are. Now, that's not the same thing that grows in the Western Basin, but it can also form toxins that are concerning and need to be filtered out. So there are some other challenges that are slightly different in nature that are definitely on everyone's minds. Let me ask you about the forecasts that you're involved in making. How sure. do you actually forecast what the severity might be and how far ahead of time can you make those and how, how accurate are you? Yeah, so the forecast is um, essentially there's Based, based off a very good relationship between the amount of phosphorus that comes out of the Maumee River, we call it the load, so being metric tons of phosphorus, over a very specific time period from March through the end of July. Um, and that relates very closely with essentially these numbers, how big the bloom is um, in a given year. Um, there are other models that do more complicated versions of that, but it's based off of that general scenario that if we have a, a big loading from the Maumee River, we get a big bloom. Um, we played around a lot with, oh, well, how much do different months matter? Does it matter over the whole year? Or can we narrow down the, uh, um, the time frame that we're looking at? So what we can do is start to track the amount of phosphorus coming from the Maumee River. We monitor all year round 
multiple times a day. We've been doing it for on the Maumee River for about uh, 45 years or so. Um, we've collected well, well over 19,000 samples. But what we do is we start to add it all up and do extra data analysis starting March 1st. And then you can see, oh, okay, so in March we got this much loading. March and April we have this much. And we can start to say, oh, well, the bloom at a minimum is probably going to be this big. Could get larger. We're not really sure. And then by the time we get to about the end, middle to end of June, we feel fairly confident in what the numbers are going to be, and that's when we put out the forecast in early July. Do you know what next year might look like? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> do, do I know what next week, next week is going to look like? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, that just depends on, it just, it depends so much on the weather as to whether it's going to be a wet year or dry year. Uh, we usually look at some of the longer term forecasting that comes out. You know, NOAA usually puts out something that says, oh, we expect the spring and summer to be wetter or drier than usual. However, I've never seen that sort of information put out before uh, January. <laughs> I, I don't want to demonize farmers in the agricultural community. Sure. Obviously, we greatly depend on what they do and appreciate what they do. But yeah. I'm wondering, I, I'm, and I'm throwing this open to both you and to Dr. Reuter, I'm, I'm assuming that at some points you talk with farmers who are, in some cases, a, a fair amount of distance away from the lake and the, the, the consequence of what they're doing. H how do they view this problem? Do they think they are part of this problem? And are they motivated to do anything about it? So I would say that most of the farmers that I've, I've spoken with are, have come to terms with the idea that they're part of the problem. But a lot of them are kind of confused as to why, about what's going on. And, and that gets into uh, some of the more specifics as to what's actually happening. Because it is a little bit of a mystery. If you look at the amount of phosphorus that's coming out of the watershed, uh, relative to what's being applied for, say, phosphorus fertilizer purposes, we're talking about less than 1% loss relative to what's being applied. So to most people, that would be really, really great. Um, but what we have to remember is that Lake Erie in the Western Basin is shallow and warm. It does not take a lot of phosphorus to cause these types of problems that we're seeing. So for some farmers, you know, they see that and they also say, you know, a lot of the effort early on has been going on to controlling soil loss so that you don't see as much sediment in the water. They've done that. They don't understand, like, well, if we're doing these things, why, why is there a problem? We've been doing what you've asked sort of things. Well, part of the issue wasn't some misunderstandings. You know, one of the understandings was phosphorus doesn't go anywhere. So you can just apply as much as you want, and it'll be fine. And it'll store up, and you'll have it long term. Well, no. In our particular area with our heavy clay soils, fields tend to be a little leaky, right? And so we need to be aware of that and that that leaking is coming through the subsurface drainage that drains all these fields so that the Western Basin is no longer a great black swamp, right? These are all important aspects as to why we're seeing the issues we're seeing. And when we put everything together, what we really think is happening is that a lot of farms are leaking a little bit of phosphorus that all together is giving us this large-scale problem. If you want to be the optimistic part of the environmental side, which is sometimes hard to find, right? <laughs> to be optimistic, I would say what that means is that the changes that we have to do, they don't, they sound big sometimes, but really they're talking about some nuanced changes in farm management, not huge, huge changes, which is why I would guess that um, Jeff was saying that we should be able to still have high pro production and agriculture 
and have a healthy lake. And I, I agree that we should be able to find that compromise. I'll let you add to that. In the 1970s and the 1980s, <clears throat> as we moved to no-till farming, we, were, we rapidly realized that when you're doing no-till farming, you're not plowing, uh, you, you, you don't want to compact your soil. Best way not to compact your soil is to drive on it when it's frozen. Uh, and, and, and when we went to no-till farming, most farmers went to a broadcast application of their fertilizer and their manure. So it's, it's really putting the fertilizer or manure on the same way you apply your fertilizer to your lawn. Drive by with a spreader, just spread it at the surface. If you spread it at the surface on frozen ground, you don't compact your soil. But it's incredibly easy then with any kind of a rain or when, when the ground thaws that that stuff just runs off very, very fast. As Laura indicated, I took agronomy at Ohio State in 1970. I was taught that phosphorus will attach to soil particles and come off with erosion. Nitrogen will dissolve in the water and come out through the tiles. When we say tiles, if you can imagine, the western basin, the Maumee watershed is so flat that the only way you can farm it is to put drain tiles underneath all of the fields, just like you have in the drain tiles under Indian Stadium or Brown Stadium. So when it rains, that water gets off there really fast. Same thing, all the fields, 14,000 miles, no, over 14,000 miles of drain tiles, uh, just in the Maumee watershed. Uh, dissolved phosphorus, 100% bioavailable, usable by the algae is coming out through the tiles. We didn't know that back in the 1970s. So the farmers were trying to prevent erosion and thinking they were doing a good job, where in reality we were seeing dissolved phosphorus coming out through the tiles and driving these harmful algal blooms. One more thing for Laura, and I need to really pat Heidelberg on the back here. When she talks about multiple samples, we, 45 years of data on the Maumee River, they sample three times per day, 365 days a year. Uh, we have an incredible data set on that river and on the, on the Sandusky River and on the Cuyahoga and the Grand and the Raisin and the Portage River. These are all rivers that are monitored. So we know more about loading and more about what drives harmful algal blooms on Lake Erie than any other body of water in the world. And a question for Laura. You've, you've commented many times, how much phosphorus from the Maumee comes in during the largest 10 storm events? Oh, right. Yeah, you want me to comment on that? Yeah, so uh, depending on what form of phosphorus you're looking at, somewhere around, you know, 70 to 90 percent. So all of, the, all of the phosphorus that's entering the lake is happening during those very high periods of time uh, where we have the flooding and, and high, high flows. Now, when I say something like that, usually you think of the entire storm event. You're like, oh, yes, this one storm in March just delivered all of this. But really, it ends up being those peak flows, like when everything is right in the middle of flooding, that when you see all of that loading. So if I had had a figure of it, it would be just the tops of each one of those storm events, which is really driving everything that's happening. And what gets tricky for farmers at that point in time is that you, it's really hard to control water at that scale. You know, it's hard to have something that you can 
to work with, right? And so at that stage, really all you can do is hope that you have put in your field, uh, you have less source. You don't have as much phosphorus available to run off because you're not going to be able to hold back any other water any other way. If we could get the farmers to insert the fertilizer rather than just broadcast it, that reduces the load leaving that field by 60%. Yeah. If they all did that. So that sounds so simple, right? That sounds super simple to, to do. And so to be the farmer's advocate, you have to realize that we're talking about a scenario now where farms have gotten bigger, there's fewer farmers themselves, and this equipment is very, very expensive. And so if you have one operation that's now farming thousands of acres, and they're going from something that's broadcasting where you can go like 15 miles per hour, now you have to inject going maybe a third of the speed. Then the question becomes, well, when am I going to be able to get this fertilizer on? Because sometimes the time, the time windows get really short. Like this year, for instance, it's been raining a lot. You can't get this equipment on the field right now, nor would you want to put fertilizer on in the middle of a storm event anyway, because you would lose a lot of it. So we know that there are some real challenges when it comes to doing this. I would like to think that uh, those are challenges that we can overcome. We're not asking you to stop growing corn and soybeans and instead uh, just have alfalfa, right? We're saying that, yeah, just changing a little bit about how you, you fertilize should have a big difference. We can do probably a, a whole program just on algal blooms, and I hope we'll have a chance to get back to this. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take kind of a sharp turn here, but before we do, I just want to point out that when we talk in the abstract about cutting federal funding for research, it's this kind of research that gets cut. And you can see the value of that research. So let's all think about that the next time that someone stands up and says, ah, we can do without that money. Can we do without understanding what's going on with algal blooms and what we can do about them? End of sermon, sorry. Um, so, Quite a difference here. Uh, we've heard a lot about sort of the, the bad things. We're going to hear from two speakers who are going to talk about some good things, uh, some conservation success stories. And our first is Kristen Stanford holding a lovely bundle of what in the world is that, Kristen? That's our, our infamous Lake Erie water snakes. <laughs> They are beautiful, aren't they? Ethel, uh, a fine example of that, is actually out in the exhibition area. Yes. I encourage all of you to go out and, and meet and greet and hold Ethel. She's very nice. Yes, I, I will add that she is a captive animal and so does not behave like a typical uh, wild-caught Lake Erie water snake would. She has been um, acclimated to, to being held by people, so she behaves herself. So she's not going to bite you. <laughs> so Lake Erie water snakes are just incredibly interesting and they're only found in Lake Erie on the islands and on the peninsula which is I, I, I gather fairly unusual and has a lot to do with some of the problems that have come up with them. Um, how in the world do you get people to care about a snake? Some of us are probably squirming at our seats a little bit as we see this but um, they were endangered mm -hmm. because of your work they are no longer and you're going to tell us about that but you had to start by getting people to, to care about these guys H how did you do that well it's not easy <laughs> because you know one of the the challenges that we face w at least with the Lake Erie water snake is you're not just dealing with trying to get people to conserve specifically this one particular uh, subspecies for example you're dealing with 
an issue of people just don't like this group of animals. So it was really ophidophobia or snake fear that you're, you're dealing with. Um, and how exactly do you do that? You just have to do a lot of it. Um, repetitive messaging, a lot of um, different um, formats of media were, were really important. Um, but probably, I, I think, one of the most significant um, avenues that, that I really focused on or we tried to focus on was that next generation of really talking to the kids and getting them to understand and get excited about this really unique animal that was living in their backyards, especially with, with the, the local kids, because they brought that message home to them, to their parents, to their grandparents, and um, that really allowed then those messages of conservation for the Lake Erie water snake to kind of take hold. They, those, those individuals then looked at what you had to say a little bit differently. Let me get you to backtrack just a little bit. So how did they get in trouble to begin with? Was it human hunting and persecution yeah. that, that brought them to the brink? So to give a little background, um, the Lake Erie water snake was first listed as a federally threatened species in 1999 and then followed suit, the state followed suit and uh, it was listed as endangered in 2000. Three primary threats um, at the, the time of listing, low population size, there were only about 1,500, 2,000 adult animals that were estimated to be left on the U.S. islands at the time of listing. Um, and then habitat destruction uh, was a significant threat. If anyone, I'm sure many of you have been out to the Lake Erie Islands before, um, have seen kind of the significant uh, development that we've had happen on the islands, which often happens in a non-snake friendly way. You know, you have a lot of shoreline clearing, um, and construction that were um, reducing not just their, their active area uh, habitats, but then also hibernation sites. And then as those habitats were cleared, you had this, this fairly significant population of people that were being put in direct contact with these animals. And a cut because of the age old, for a lot of people, the only good snake is a dead snake. We have on record probably one of the most well-recorded instances of purposeful uh, population decline through direct human persecution. So people were basically going out of their way to try to eradicate these snakes when they came into contact with them. In some pretty gruesome ways with shovels and gasoline and sometimes even pet pigs, uh, I, I yes, think, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, in his Historically, I kind of always back up, one of the really interesting things about the Lake Erie Islands is when they were first um, discovered and when first European explorers kind of came into to Lake Erie and were mapping these islands, they actually labeled them as Les Eels aux Serpentes, or the Islands of Serpents, because of the significant number of water snakes and other species of snakes that they were finding on the Lake Erie Islands, which I think is really interesting. Um, and we had people come in and, and start settling and clearing these islands for farming. Um, and yes, pig, pigs were actually released uh, specifically to eradicate these, these uh, populations, these large populations of, of water snakes. So what was your pitch? I mean, you, you, you are out there in the midst of people that are wanting to recreate and live and have their kids run around and there are these snakes and the natural instinct is to get rid of them. How do you counter that? I mean, what do you say about why these snakes need to be preserved? Right. Well, you know, you can't really go up to somebody who is kind of a diehard um, snake hater or even a disliker and think that you're going to um, kind of 
jam a, a conservation message down their throat or like that I'm going to turn you into a snake lover, so to speak. I mean, that, that's just crazy. Um, so our message became a matter of respect. You know, again, we tried to educate and talk about that, that here were these animals that were historically an important part of the Lake Erie Island ecosystem. And we really tried to promote a message of respect, hence our now our website that talks about Lake Erie conservation is called Respect the Snake. Um, and we really tried, again, to, to say, I don't expect you as an individual to ever change your mind as to whether or not you like this particular animal. But what I'm asking of you is to perhaps have some respect that it deserves a place along along the lakeshore just as you do. And so that, that seemed to, to resonate amongst the the residents. You did this in some really creative ways from, from t-shirts. I don't know whether people can quite read what that says, but I think it's, have you hugged your... That one's a hellbender shirt, but okay. yes, we did within our, our um, annual census that we would hold every year, which we called the Nerodio, which was a play on words, the scientific name for the Lake Erie water snakes, Nerodia, Cipidon, and Solarium, and so it was our Nerodia Rodeo. <laughs> so this, this was our annual census, and we still actually do a smaller Nerodio within our monitoring program still yet this year, but we would make an annual shirt. And for many of our volunteers that um, would show up to, to help us monitor the snakes every year, we would have a different themed shirt every year. You have signs posted. You've been on numerous uh, radio shows. I mentioned uh, the Discovery Channel's Dirty Jobs, where Mike Rove got to see these up close and personal. I wasn't really happy about it, but uh, <laughs> it was his he first understood. Day, so <laughs> <laughs> that's online somewhere. You guys should check out the trailer. It's pretty funny. Um, you've done some really interesting research about the diet of these snakes, and specifically about a pretty dramatic change in diet that has to do with invasive species. Tell us about that. Yeah, that and that was really. Um, interesting when we obviously had to start monitoring the, the population, populations of water snakes early on in, in um, the listing as part of the recovery program, one of the things that we were really taking notice of was how many round gobies, the water snakes that we were either uh, catching were swimming in with or they were voluntary regurgitating, and we actually we started quantifying that in the early 2000s. And what we were able to show was that within a very short period of time, the water snakes, actually less than, than um, three snake generations, they had shifted their diet from primarily bottom-dwelling native species, where it used to be like um, catfish and darters and uh, species like that that were found along the lake bottom, to now over 90% of their diet is, is round gobies. So most of the time you hear about invasive species, you know, we've talked about invasives a little bit, we hear negative impacts that they have to our, uh, the Lake Erie ecosystem and especially our native wildlife when it in, in the sense that might be exacerbated when we're talking about threatened and endangered species. But here was a case where the round goby coming in actually was very beneficial. Um, to follow that, when we, we saw that diet shift, we wanted to ask, well, how has this impacted uh, our water snake populations? So we uh, examined several different aspects of the animal's life history, including their reproduction, their survivorship, um, their actual um, growth rate, all of which we found increased since they had started consuming round gobies. 
And this basically led to the population explosion that we saw happen really simultaneously with the actual listing itself. And that helped facilitate um, the, the I, I guess, the rapid increase in population size that we saw that helped uh, us achieve that recovery goal so quickly. Where do you think that's headed? Do you think that the snake population will continue to increase? Will it stabilize at some point? Will there Will their range increase possibly? Well, it actually has stayed, it's definitely stabilized. Um, we're, I, I say roughly right around 10,000 individuals on the Lake Erie Islands right now. We saw it kind of peak a little bit, um, 2007, 2008, and then it's come down uh, a little since then. And roughly, like I said, roughly around 10,000 individuals on the Lake Erie Islands. But as far as um, you mentioned, expansion of, uh, water snakes or the water snake numbers. So Lake Erie water snakes, as far as the, the subspecific designation, it's only on the Lake Erie Islands that we're considering them Lake Erie water snakes, but there are a significant populations of northern water snakes along um, the shoreline on the mainland Lake Erie. And I remember when I first started working, I, I did some programs for Cleveland Metro Parks just talking about Lake Erie water snakes and some of the work that we did. And at the time, they had, would rarely see a water snake like once or twice within a summer. Well, within a five to six year period, and again, this was right when the water snakes, or our Lake Erie water snakes had shifted their diet, the populations exploded to the point where they were seeing them regularly and their naturalists had started doing programs about water snakes in places that they had, they had never seen before. So even mainland water snakes were benefiting from the introduction of the round gobies and, and we're basically experiencing the same things that our island populations were. For every good story, there's a little bit of a bad turn and you lately have seen fungal disease starting to show up in the snake population. Mm -hmm. How worried are you about that? Well, slightly, I'm gonna say slightly, not extremely, but slightly. Um, we do, we've known that the snake fungal disease, um, which is kind of a, a newly emerging threat for a lot of, um, I would say, eastern United States snake populations uh, within the past five, five to six years. Um, we've known that it's been present within our Lake Erie water snake populations since uh, the late 2000s, 2009, 2010. In fact, within the, the initial um, bulletin from the National Wildlife Health Lab that was released, one of our animals that we had, had sent there was actually identified as, as having the, the disease present. Um, so we know that it's been there for a while prior to even, I, I would say, the, the threat um, getting put out there. However, um, that has led us then to partner with kind of the experts in the field that are, that are really studying and trying to get a handle on how this disease um, could be affecting snake populations in general. Um, and we've started some fairly intensive monitoring uh, just within the past couple years to hopefully allow us to answer some questions that a lot of other biologists and snake uh, um, researchers are not afforded because we have such a large mark recapture data set. So for example, we're um, doing, we've incorporated some 
what we call surveillance monitoring within our typical processing that we do where we're actually swabbing every individual that we're coming into contact with and then testing to see whether or not the fungus is present on those individuals. Well, the concerning part, so that's why I say I'm slightly concerned, that from the couple of sites that we have done the surveillance swabbing, it's coming back that over 75% of individuals have the fungus present. But the, just because the fungus is present doesn't necessarily mean that the animal has the disease, though. So it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that 75% of our animals have the disease, but it says that 75% of them have the potential to have the disease. So the potential is there. What we're hoping that we will be able to show um, with a couple years uh, more of data is that at least for Lake Erie water snakes, some of our individuals or a, hopefully a, a significant portion of those 75% are actually able to survive um, and lead a fairly normal life even though that fungus was present, that they're not becoming extremely symptomatic and succumbing to what now a lot of researchers call this snake fungal disease, but we won't, we're, like I said, we're in year two, we need a couple more years of data before we can kind of run those population estimates, so. Once again, the value of research. Yes. It's, it's a wonderful story the next time you're on Kelly's Island or put in bay and you see that, that that's a good thing. So let's, <laughs> let's celebrate that. Um, our, our final panelist, um, David Kriska, is the magician of Minter Marsh. David, you've done some remarkable work there, and I want to have you just sort of take us back in time. Minter Marsh um, started off as uh, something different than it ended up today. It's, it's, let me take you even back a little bit further than that and, and have you talk about the value of marshes themselves and their value to the lake. Why are they important? Oh, they're important for so many reasons. You know, they're a filter. We all, many of us know that when that water comes through, this water that we're talking about, coming down those rivers, these wetlands just filter out a lot of the particulates that are coming in, the sediments, the nutrients. We call them the kidneys of our lakes. So they've got that biological value. And then they just teem with wildlife. Uh, they're like mecca when it comes to birds that we don't see, for example, or uh, other wildlife like the river otters. and. So many different kind of species use wetlands. Many, many of our native wildlife in our region use wildlife in some part of their life, whether it's fish or birds. And so they're really important in that regards. So the marsh started out um, as a, a, actually a, a, an approach to the lake, and then what changed? How did it turn from the Grand River into the marsh? It's, you know, it, we're talking about Lake Erie, and it's such a dynamic system. I mean, right now we're looking at a 20-year high. We think of Lake Erie, and just look out across that beautiful uh, panorama, but it goes up and down. It goes up about an inch a month. This is kind of rough, just from January to June, and it kind of peaks. And we don't really see that as, unless you're, uh, you work on the lake. And it goes down for about an inch a month for six months. It's just rough. But every 15 or so years, it oscillates and we get bigger cycles within that uh, one. And so the last three years, we keep getting higher and higher and higher water levels. And so we're at a 20-year high right now. And so you imagine that. So after the, your images of the glaciers retreating uh, and you have that kind of fluctuation, 
that Grand River, it's our, supposedly our healthiest river entering Lake Erie either side. Um, you know, it's pushing out, pushing out. And sometimes when the lake levels are low, you've got sandbars, the winter storms build up sandbars. It's really dynamic there at the shoreline. Well, eventually it cuts its way right into Lake Erie. Uh, I don't know if you can see on that image up there. And so it abandoned, we, we know that it abandoned um, the Grand River, I'm sorry, the Menor Marsh, which is about a four mile long wetland now. That four mile long segment got abandoned about 3,000 years ago based on uh, uh, radiocarbon coring data. We have this lovely hand-tended picture that showed um, what the marsh looked like. I, I'm thinking, what is that, in the 30s, probably? Yeah, that's one of those lantern slides that was hand-painted with the horsehair. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, beautiful oh, images. Amazing. So let's fast forward just a little bit in time. If I so, I mean, the point being that the marsh managed somehow to escape the development that was all around it with the help of the museum. This is sort of a, a more up-to-date image of, of where the marsh is and what it looks like. And it, it escaped a lot of the development that, that was around it. And then in the 60s, something happened. It's that, it's that red thing right there. What, <laughs> the what red happened? blob. <laughs> the, the red blob. What is that? Yeah, this is it's an amazing conservation story. It's sort of like the, I guess you'd call it rags to riches to rags. And hopefully at the end of the story, it'll be back to riches again. Uh, in the... The marine on the far west there, on the left side of everyone's screen, Lake Erie, we know, is the deadliest lake of all the, other, all the Great Lakes combined, the shipwrecks. And so Safe Harbor was a big deal. Um, we were wooden ships in the 1900, early 1900s, and when the storms come up on Lake Erie, like we had 10 to 15 foot waves yesterday. It comes up like that. It comes up so quick. And so people would like hustle and try to get to Safe Harbor. So the mouth of the old marina, I mean the old, that's the marina there on the, on the west side, the um, Mentor Lagoons. This is about an hour uh, east of here. And uh, so people would, would dive there as quickly as they could for safe harbor. And so even in the 1800s, um, the precursor of the Army Corps was looking for these safe places. And so that was dredged out in the 1920s and made it in the marina. The stock market crash in the 20s um, kind of put the kibosh on that. And so the, there were plans to develop it, the entire thing. And that came up a couple of times. And then in 19, the 1960s, there was another plan to make that just one giant four mile long marina and golf courses. And uh, so the museum and other partners, the Holden Arboretum and Blackbrook Audubon, which is the, uh, the Blackbrook Bird Club back then, and um, the, the Nature Conservancy was brand new in Ohio, all got together and took a look at that marsh. And it, back then it was a mosaic of swamp forests. Those are trees standing out of water, a mosaic of emergent marsh, like grasses sticking out of the water. And they took a look at it and they realized there were 100 parcels in there. But they took on that campaign. And at the time, the museum only had two other parcels of, um, in our land, our natural areas program, uh, one on Kelly's Island and uh, another bog. And uh, so they took it on and it was a tough story. I mean, there were, some, there were wins, there were losses, some of the trees got cut down. And by around 1966, they were patting themselves on the back and then uh, in comes the red blob. It was uh, up in the top right corner up there, that, all that white uh, in the far right corner is, the left side is Headlands Beach, that's our, our biggest beach, right? The right side though is the, on the edge of the Morton Salt facility, in Port Morton Salt, they get thrown under the bus on this a lot, but they, this is pre-Clean Water Act, right? We, we learned about that. They had a football field pile size of low grade rock salt, the, the red blob. And they hired a contractor to move it. And guess where the contractor put it? About a mile down the road. And so the museum's phones went off the hook. Hey, the marsh is dying. <laughs> I mean, it literally went up. And uh, 
there's some images that are just incredible. Um, we, it said all those trees were there. It just created this perfect tinderbox, as you see in the bottom right. Dead standing trees. In jumps a non-native plant called Phragmites. It's that 15-foot tall grass that's along our highways that, that's very salt tolerant. Anybody, everybody, anybody not seeing it? I'll throw somebody under the bus here. <laughs> Nobody wanted to raise their hands. <laughs> and nearly cattail and non-native cattail and hybrid cattails and... Uh, so that, the left image is just the biggest stand of Phragmites in the state of Ohio. It's about 800 acres of solid And it Phragmites. is dense, right? I mean, it just takes over and smothers everything. We have, we have uh, volunteers and researchers that did the counts. I mean, uh, you know, t 225 stems per square meter. That's, that's uh, about one stem every three inches or something like that. So it's kind of hard what, for what critters does that to get in to, there. Yeah, what does that do to, to native species of, of, of plants and, and animals? It drives them out, that's for sure. It's tough to get in there. Uh, it's pretty much a biological desert, that concept of that there's life there, but it's just pretty much one plant, a monoculture. And we know that monocultures are notoriously unstable. So here's our preserve, and suddenly it is a desert. It's covered with Phragmites. And not only does it have Phragmites, but when they dry out, they, they burn, right? They go boom. Yeah, that, that fire, uh, we had museum members in South Korea that saw it on the news. They were in, it made the international news. The soot came down 20 miles away in Chardon and Painesville. But in, in the ashes of the fire arose something. So w what happened, our, our boardwalk, by the way, uh, pretty much was toast after one of those fires. But Something about that boardwalk. What, what happened that made you think that, that you might be able to change things? That's sort of our boardwalk of shame. If you look at it, you see that uh, there's Phragmites growing up through the boardwalk. So this is 2003. If you had hiked that, it would have been like hiking through a tunnel of Phragmites. It's shame on us, but uh, it was that aha moment where it was like, well, well, let me back up. We decided to do something about it, right, finally. And uh, so we used sweat equity. We decided to push back that Phragmites away from the boardwalk. Because um, it was 86,000 nowhere boardwalk, that might have been the tail wagging the dog a little bit there. But also, you know, we just wanted to get it back and, and, uh, and lo and behold, when we pushed it back using brush cutters and uh, the, that's literally sweat equity, these little punji stakes that would punch through your boots, it was, it was rough. But out of the native seed bank, uh, that soil seed bank, this is a, a muck soil, it's just dead plants, pops all these native plants that you see in the right image there. And that was that phoenix arising from the ashes moment where, the, aha, there was, there was hope here. And uh, So you, you did that in, that in that little buffer area. I mean, it's, what, 10, 10 20 feet wide. Mm -hmm. And you have this return, but, I mean, you've got the rest of the marsh covered with Phragmites. What made you think that you could expand that to, to the entire marsh? <laughs> and how did you do that? Uh, blind ambition? I don't know. You know, that was sort of like, <laughs> careful what you wish for. Yeah. In hindsight, it was like, I don't, if I knew what it would have taken, you know, I, never, <laughs> I don't know if I would have done it. But, uh, all these birds showed up, and the birders were going gaga. So it, you know, it, that was kind of like, wow, this is kind of neat. These rare sparrows were showing up, these rare rails and bitterns were starting to show up, and uh, uh our fearless leader, Dr. Jim Bissell, had, he, he had that faith that it could be done. But on that scale, it was sort of like, how? And then we learned about helicopters and this concept of um, uh, herbicides. This, so this is 2003, uh, and back then, Roundup had a really bad rap that it well deserves. And so we decided to experiment with a new herbicide in the market called Aquanite. And it's essentially, it's an aquatic 
approved formulation of glyphosate. It's, it's got the glyphosate that we all hear on the news all the time. But, so we spent a winter with an ulcer after we applied it, and the very next year, in comes leopard frogs that hadn't been seen there before. And they're now throughout the entire marsh basin. We're kind of giving away some of what's going to happen there. But it was, uh, that was kind of sobering. And then, then we found out about some of these big programs that would use um, helicopters because you could cover a lot of ground. And talk about an ulcer all winter long. It was, we, we brought out a helicopter. We did a big test plot on a couple hundred acres. And uh, yeah, sure enough, the leopard frogs loved that program. And uh, the, we, then we really got serious about this in 2015, so about three years ago. We brought up the, the big guns. So there's the helicopter on the bottom right. There's one of our land stewards in the center right image with the brush cutter there. And then we learned about some of these other different tools. Uh, the top right image, are, those are called Argos. They're amphibious vehicles that they've got rubber tracks on them. When you go out walking the marsh, you always want to be first in line because the last person in line, <laughs> we say wear a hat so we know where to look for you because it's, a, like I said, it's a muck soil. It's, it, yeah, it gets deeper and deeper with every, <laughs> every step. The machine on the left, that is a one big toy. That's, those little Argos on the top right are about 1,300 pounds. The, the big guy on the left is 6,000 pound tank. It's amphibious. Aluminum, uh, we hired that fella, and he spent weeks and weeks and weeks driving through that Phragmites. We wanted to mash it down to let the sunlight get in there to stimulate that soil seed bank that we knew was there from that boardwalk story, but we really didn't know, kind of. So I, yeah, I, can, I spent weeks and weeks riding with this fella, and just, this is all I saw for hours on him, <laughs> you know, just Phragmites stalks. What and, have uh, you seen come back now that you've done that? It's been kind of slow at first. That Phragmites is loaded with silica, and that's why it stays dead standing. But once we mashed it down and started breaking into pieces, um, slowly but surely things started to green up. Uh, in 2016, we had about 60 species of plants that came out of that soil seed bank. It's like, a, it's like the uh, Svalbard uh, bank up in the Arctic, you know, where we, we vault our seeds at. This, the Menor Marsh is exactly like it. This year, one of our really talented uh, stewards, these are the guys that are out there, the, the men and women doing the sweat equity, he had 154 species now that's come out of that soil seed bank. You're seeing things like uh, otters? Uh, oh, yeah. The, the wildlife love the program. We've got otter. We've got coyotes. We've got mink. Mink are loving all the nesting birds coming back. The nesting birds, every year it's something new. Uh, this year we had, um, what was our new bird this year? Uh, Prothonotary warblers. It's uh, one, our biggest warbler, and it's a, a tree cavity nester, so it's nesting in some of the dead snags. Last year we had king rail show up. That's an uber that's known from a dozen sites in Ohio, and most are in, up in the western Sandusky Bay and the Winus marshes and that. And those Virginia rails and soars, least bitterns. Uh, we had sandhill cranes last week or two weeks ago, short-eared owls, uh, marsh hawks. We had yellow-headed blackbirds, which just show up and then the last two years in a row. They're right at the edge of their range. Uh, we've, yeah, so much wildlife has showed up. It's just been uh, that classic, if you build it, they'll come. Let and me so show you an amazing transformation here. Notice that the background. That's Phragmites still. The foreground's right. been treated. Let's Those are helicopter can, stripes there. That's Corduroy Road right there across into the middle. There's one lone tree in the background you can see. And then that's the uh, uh, Perry nuclear plant in the background to give you an idea where you're at. There we go. So watch the background disappear. So that's been treated. Those are helicopter strips that it missed. There's that, still that lone tree. And then look at this year, how it's completely filled in with those 154 species of native plants. And then the background, you see it starting to green up a bit. 
right along Corey Road, we planted some plants and then we experimented with different um, extra mashing, trying to really break that frag down and speed things up. So now that you've done this, can you do it again? And are you looking at doing it elsewhere? <laughs> Trick question. Uh, well, you know, yeah, it can be, re it can be replicated. It's the, the biggest stand of frag, so it's the biggest root mass in a while. So we're not out of the woods yet, pun intended, but we're slowly but surely uh, making headway. So we've got that eastern basin to tackle there, and, uh, and that's another three to five years probably to, to get that to look like the foreground. But it, yeah, there's hope. We can do this other marshes. Um, we're sharing, we're working with other partners, the Winus Point Marsh Conservancy, Ottawa National Wild Refuge. Um, those, these folks, this, the best thing is prevention, early detection, rapid response to keep these invasives out. Um, and a lot of, the public is generally starting to kind of clue in on what these things, there's economic costs, uh, at the federal level they're recognizing it, the state, these invasive plant councils around the country now. I, I, you've heard enough of my questions, you all are here because you are interested in Lake Erie, so let's get the microphones out in the crowd and uh, give you a, a chance to, to ask what you want to know from these great folks. Our, our docents are walking around with microphones. I've got one here. So um, please raise your hand if you have a question. Everybody hear that? That's why was phosphorus important to, to algal blooms and to the health of the lake? Yeah, so it's a great question. And you can think of uh, uh, fertilizing your lawn. Uh, if you buy a bag of fertilizer at Lowe's or Home Depot or something like that, you're going to see an NPK ratio on it, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, it's an essential nutrient, uh, so plant growth needs that phosphorus. It turns out that in fresh water, when you're trying to control growth of any plant, uh, you're going to try to reduce or control the limiting nutrient, the nutrient that's in the shortest supply. In fresh water, that the nutrient that's in the shortest supply is almost always phosphorus. In salt water, for instance, if you hear on the Gulf of Mexico, you'll hear uh, concerns over the amount of nitrogen down there. In salt water, the limiting nutrient is almost always nitrogen. In salt water, phosphorus is important. In fresh water, nitrogen is important. But the limiting nutrient is the one that we try to control. So when we have a, a, a an algal bloom, that bloom keeps growing and growing and growing until the essential nutrient that's in the shortest supply runs out. When that's happened, when, when that happens, the bloom stops growing. And in fresh water, phosphorus is almost always the one that runs out first. So if you reduce the amount of that, you cause the bloom to stop growing sooner, if that makes sense. And you've actually helped um, major fertilizer producers get phosphorus out of the mix, right? That's exactly right. As part of the Ohio Phosphorus Task Force, in 2013, we came up with the original recommendations to reduce phosphorus loading by 40%. Uh, Scott's miracle Grow was on our Ohio Phosphorus Task Force. Scott's did a lot of research on this for lawn, the lawn care industry. And at that point, there were, was a lot of finger pointing going on, the agriculture community saying, no, it's really lawn care that's causing this problem. What Scott's did 
is totally take phosphorus out of all their lawn care products except for their starter fertilizer uh, Janu starting January 1st of 2013. So if you go into Lowe's or Home Depot and you pick up Scott's miracle Grow and you look at that NPK ratio, the middle number is going to be zero. There's no phosphorus in that product any longer and your lawns are still doing fine. And Scott's is big enough, as John was indicating, that when Scott's did this, 95% of the market followed suit. So lawn care is off the table. Next question. How does the phosphorus impact the fish stock? I've heard some pretty good walleye hatches in 13 or 15 and 18, perch are coming back. How does that impact the fish? So far, uh, the concern with too much phosphorus is that it makes, um, uh, you get increased turbidity and that can uh, harm the uh, strength of the year classes of perch and walleye. We haven't seen that happen yet. Uh, but what we are seeing is that the fish are taking up the toxins. Uh, so far, the toxins are not causing any problem for the fish that we can see, and the toxin levels within the fish are not high enough to cause a problem for people that we believe. But, but that's, that's the concern on the, on the fishery side, and I would say that the jury's still out on that. This question is for uh, Dr. Johnson. Um, over the last couple decades, uh, Heidelberg saw a dramatic increase in the uh, dissolved reactive form of phosphorus relative to total phosphorus. What is your current understanding of what was going on there? So the current understanding of why does all phosphorus increase or? Right. Yep. Uh, Yes. Could you start just by telling us what the difference is between those two things? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you know, over time we've been monitoring various different forms of phosphorus. And the two big ones we usually think of phosphorus that's associated with particulates that's attached to sediments or other various uh, particles, right? It's particulate phosphorus. And then there's dissolved phosphorus, and, and that's the phosphorus you can't see. That's why you filter out all the particles and what's still left in the water. And that dissolved phosphorus that you can't see um, is what is really easy for anything that grows in the lake to be able to use. Well, it turns out, you know, that's also the form of phosphorus, mostly, uh, that is also crop-available phosphorus, right? So what we're trying to maintain as a, a pool in the, in the fields in order to have good crop growth is going to be very similar to the types of dissolved phosphorus that then can also run off and lead out into the lake. So if we looked over time, what we ended up seeing is that we saw uh, that dissolved form of phosphorus you know, it was fairly low through uh, the mid-80s up into the mid-90s, and then we've seen a twofold increase in dissolved phosphorus from about 1998 to 2002. And then concurrent with that, we saw an increase in the amount of flow coming out of the Maumee River. The two of those together is what led to what we see in 2003, which was that really big bloom year, the first one, and then we've gone on since then. So why do we see the increase in dissolved phosphorus? And 
That is not the easiest question to answer, so I guess that's probably why you, you asked it. There's a lot of possible reasons as to why that happened, um, and I could go over all of them, but we would probably be here for quite some time. What I think are the big reasons, um, and the reason I said before, it's a bit of a mystery as to why we're having these issues, is if you looked at the amount of phosphorus that's in the soil, balanced with how much yield we're getting, so how much phosphorus is actually being harvested, what you would see is that our soil test levels have, if anything, been going down. Our farms are getting to a point where we're actually harvesting more phosphorus away. We get a lot of phosphorus in our grains than, um, than what's being applied. So you would think that we're at a point where we shouldn't be seeing any issues at all. What we think happened is when we were trying to control for um, erosion losses, we switched to what we call conservation tillage or, and rotational tillage, right? So we weren't turning the soil over anymore. It used to be you'd see these big moldboard plows and you'd see big rills, right? And the soils would be just all turned over. That's not all that popular anymore because it's actually incredibly harmful for your soil. You lose all kinds of the good stuff that makes soil like potting soil, right? That organic content that makes it nice and dark. Well, you need that to hold on to water and things and have good soil structure. So we switched to no-till, farms got bigger, equipment got bigger, and soils got compacted. And so with that, we also saw more broadcasting of fertilizer, which, uh, which Jeff had mentioned before. We had always had uh, broadcasting of fertilizer on the surface. It just used to be that we'd mix it up. And now we're not mixing it up anymore. And even if you take a chisel or a disc and you mix it, it's only within the top couple of inches of soil. These soils are very heavily clay. And I don't know if you've ever gone and tried to dig in your dirt after a rain event, but sometimes it'll rain and it'll, you go down a couple inches, it'll be completely dry. Because with the heavy clay soils that are so prevalent in the Western Basin, that rain only interacts with maybe the top inch of soil. And then it'll go over, and so that's not enough, right? That's not enough on its own to be a concern. Where it happens to become an issue is then that water that's now on the surface and interacted with all this high concentration of phosphorus hanging out on the surface, um, it'll go over and it can hit a root channel or um, an earthworm hole or a big crack and then hits that and then it shoots right down into the tile drain, that subsurface drainage, and gets out into the ditch. And that is what we think has happened. We think that it's not just the phosphorus on the surface, but it's the phosphorus on the surface with the way our soils are and the surface uh, drainage that all link together to be link leaking these little bits of phosphorus everywhere. Um, uh, it makes it a very nuanced management approach, but that's why if you talk to anyone, the first thing they say that you really need to do is nutrient management. You gotta make sure you're not applying too much phosphorus, that you're putting it in the right place, um, you know, uh, those are the two big things. Don't put too much on there. Don't get, you know, get it off the surface if we can. The 4R nutrient certification program for retailers is a big part of that. So the about 50% of the acreage that's serviced by, by retailers, you know, like the people that are selling the fertilizer to farmers and then, uh, you know, telling them how to apply it is now under a, a 4R certification program. The 4Rs are applying fertilizer the right rate at the right time, so not on frozen ground or a before rain event, um, in the right place and using the right source. Right? Very simple way of saying nutrient management. So step one is that, and then everything else comes after that. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is about 
microplastics, and maybe this is not the right panel to be asking about microplastics in Lake Erie. Ask um, anyway. I hear that Lake Erie has a higher concentration of microplastics than just about any other body of water, and that they come from toothpaste. And is there anything being done to work on microplastics? Okay, so uh, yeah, so microplastics. I, I, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know if Lake Erie has more than other places. My guess would be yes, because of the high amount of urban inputs. And so you guys, you know, can chime in on that. What I do know about microplastics is yes, uh, things like toothpaste or cosmetics. You know, like the things with the exfoliating microbeads, those types of things are contributors. And some places, if I remember correctly, Chicago being one of them, have banned having microplastics in those types of personal care products. But in fact, the, the largest source of microplastics ends up being essentially broken down larger plastics. It's like little shreds of it. They're not the perfect little beads. If you looked at them under a microscope, they're not perfect like that anymore. And it can come from all kinds of things like plastic bags that ended up in a stream and they got beat up a lot and now they're out in, in the lake. Or all those balloons. I mean, I think Lake Erie has maybe the highest number of balloons I've ever seen anywhere <laughs> just floating in the middle of the lake. You know? So those types of things all contribute to microplastics. Um, and we should be concerned about them for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one is that they can, those types of plastics act as endocrine disruptors, right? They act like they're hormones and can really have large effects over organisms that are living in the lake. Um, but I will let my other panelists add to microplastics if they want. And I encourage you to check out a recent episode of the Museum Sora podcast, which was totally about plastic pollution, particularly about Lake Erie plastic pollution. Yeah. Yes, uh, now that you've killed back all of the Phragmites and uh, things seem to be coming back, you still have the problem of the, uh, the brackish water entering the, the uh, marsh. Is that being reduced over time? Of course, it would be reduced, but is there any plan to remove that uh, contaminant, or uh, what's going on with that? And what's right. the future of the marsh as far as that goes? Yeah, I failed to mention that in 1987, that landfill was capped, and Blackbrook Creek was rerouted just strictly to the eastern basin, so it parallels Route 44 now. And so that's where most of the salt loading is at. Uh, Fortunately, everything west of the Black Brook, that red blob, everything to the west toward, the, toward me, toward the left of the image, is, uh, it's been flushed. The salt has, uh, those, the water level, the salinity levels in there are at freshwater levels. Not so much in the far eastern basin. It's still slightly brackish. Uh, now that landowner has been, uh, he's had some really close dealings with the AG, the Attorney General, so, uh, like he's not on his favorite list right now, so so hopefully, and we've been saying hopefully for a couple of decades now that that landfill gets removed uh, and then gets restored back to its. And there's been some a court hearing, and yeah, it's coming to a head. So hopefully we get that removed soon. Uh, years ago, the uh, states surrounding the Great Lakes and the province of Ontario began a series of meetings to manage the waters in the Great Lakes. I think it was called the Great Lakes Compact. Uh, what's the status of that, and how is that affecting our Lake Erie? The, the compact's in place. Um, it, it's a. Uh, it, it 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 was designed to prevent 
uh, people from taking water uh, from within the Great Lakes Basin out of the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, in order to move water out of the Great Lakes Basin, it takes the approval of the eight governors in, in, the, in the states. Uh, we had a discussion just before the meeting, uh, Fran Buchholzer and, and uh, Sam Speck was the, the director of DNR at the time that this was, this was passed. It's a very good uh, uh, agreement between the states. There have been places where uh, this has been uh, contested. Uh, most uh, recently, I believe, in the uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin area, and near Milwaukee, where they are transporting uh, some water out of the basin. Uh, it's a concern any time that happens. The amount going out of the basin there is not significant enough to have it, but there's such a demand for fresh water that any time you allow any to go out, you there's the concern that you're essentially opening the door and more and more groups are going to try to, to, to basically take Great Lakes water. And, and so right now the compact is just designed to prevent that from happening. So I had a question about I had a question about the uh, removal of phosphorus by large sewage systems or water systems. So you mentioned about Toledo, for example, that they are able to remove a lot of the phosphorus at the front end. Um, what happens to that phosphorus? Where does it go? What's what what happens to it? And uh, one quick question about Mentor Marsh: When you're using the amphibian machine. Is that totally without glyphosate then? Is that just tramping down and not having to do any chemical treatment? Or is it a combination? Shall we go first? Um, okay, so uh, just to clarify, um, so at the drinking water plant, what they're removing is the toxin uh, that is you know, created by the cyanobacteria, the, blue, the algae that are growing in the lake. All phosphorus does is feed the fact that those blooms exist, right? So um, when they have that toxin I, I, and they remove all of that and they have that sort of already now bound toxin to, um, to activated carbon, I guess I'm not entirely sure what happens to it. I'm guessing it gets landfilled. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important point that you're bringing up because until, uh, well, back in the, in the 60s and the 70s when most of the problem was coming from poor sewage treatment. Most of our sewage treatment plants only had primary sewage treatment. Primary sewage treatment is really a, f you take out the big pieces and the rest goes in. It's, it's a filtering process, uh, including Detroit. And Detroit is the largest sewage treatment plant to the Great Lakes, two and a half times bigger than the combined total of Toledo and Cleveland. And Cleveland, or the Northeastern Ohio Regional Sewer District, is the largest in our state. So Detroit is huge. Secondary sewage treatment came, uh, came in in the 1970s. That's what paid for the 60% reduction in the amount of, 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 of phosphorus coming in. Secondary sewage treatment is a biological process. So what you try to do is grow a whole bunch of organisms in your sewer system, in the sewage treatment plant, 
and you grow so many of them so rapidly that they use up the phosphorus that's in the water and then you filter out those organisms and then you're left with a biological solid mm -hmm. biological they call them biosolids and those are spread on land and sometimes farmed then afterwards and it's very important when we think of with with farmers we're telling them don't apply too much phosphorus the same thing is true for Ohio EPA and and sewage treatment plants when they spread that material on land it's just like spreading fertilizer on that land and you don't want to spread too much of that if you put too much of that on you'll have phosphorus runoff from the fields where you spread the biosolids. And so I, I know that a lot of, just to add on to this, and it, this is getting off topic a little bit, but um, I know a lot of times people, they don't like the idea of spreading biosolids or manure on farm fields for various reasons, but we have to remember, like, if you think about sort of that logical disconnect that we are growing crops so we have to put fertilizer phosphorus fertilizer on there then we all consume it and then we have these waste products that have the thing that we need in them the most sustainable thing we can do is then reuse that phosphorus that we've already had to capture to protect our fresh waters instead of continuing to mine it in an unsustainable way so making sure that we can use these products you know as agronomic need so that we prevent these problems that we have but still use that phosphorus and don't let it just end up in a landfill, it should be considered a precious resource because in fact it is, so. One more point on that because it's gonna impact what happens throughout our state now. Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement required all the sewage treatment plants in the Great Lakes watershed to reduce their concentration of phosphorus down to one part per million. For the sewage treatment plants that feed into the Great Lakes, that was a 75 to a 90% reduction in the amount of phosphorus that went in. So that's how much the phosphorus load was reduced by the sewage treatment plants in the 70s. The plants in Ohio that don't feed into the Great Lakes, Dayton, Cincinnati, Columbus, they don't have that same guideline. And so they're discharging something like two and a half or three parts per million, about three times what comes in, uh, say, from Cleveland. Uh, it's likely that within the next few years, they'll be put under the same kind of guideline. And that'll be a very good thing when it happens, but it'll be expensive to implement. I think there was a Metter Marsh question in there for David. Yeah, the question was uh, the marsh master and we did we use it for glyphosate application and or just smashing and it, it, the answer is both uh, we used the marsh master around the perimeter of the marsh so that uh, we didn't uh, affect the trees with the helicopter spraying and then we also used the marsh master to mash that phragmites down as well um, we use we were using uh, we used a product called uh, that's aquanite that had been tested on fish and amphibians and aquatic insects you know so we did our homework on that and we also when you read the label, um, like I mentioned earlier, Roundup deserved that bad rap. It's surfactant, it's carrier or a juven that etches into the plants. That's what's really toxic. And it says right on the label, don't use it over um, water. It also says to dilute it. Because when it comes out of the bottle, when you buy it off the shelf, it's 54% glyphosate. We water ours down to 3%. We've, we do the BMPs, the best management practices, to try to, uh, to eliminate the Phragmites. So when we treat Phragmites, 
Um, it takes weeks and weeks. Most people, when they buy Roundup off the shelf, they want to see that plant die now, <laughs> right now, you know. And so we're biting our nails, waiting for weeks and weeks for these plants uh, to take it all the way down to the root. So it's sort of that art of war, know thy enemy. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I walked around for a long time with a, a bullseye on my back when we started saying we're using glyphosate. And um, it's, it's a really well-researched chemical, and I don't, I don't want to defend it, but we have to be careful what we wish for. If it were to get banned, what's the next best, worst alternative? Glyphosate affects a, a, uh, an enzyme that, we, that aren't in mammals, aren't in humans. Um, it, it's only in plants. So it's, yeah, it's a trade-offs in everything we do, right? I hate to say we've got time for one more question. Do we have the technology to stop the Asian carp from coming up the Mississippi? And why aren't we using that also on the uh, cleaning of the uh, bilges, ocean-going ships, why aren't we enforcing that when it's a voluntary program and it's obviously not working with two, almost 200 invasive species in Lake Erie now? Um, the, we have, the, the best thing to do in Chicago would be to separate the two basins. Essentially in the early 1900s or late 1800s, um, we reversed the flow of the Chicago River. So instead of flowing into Lake Michigan, it flows out of Lake Michigan. Uh, and it allows, uh, like for instance, if you, if you ride on one of the excursion boats in Chicago, they will brag on the boat that they send their sewage to St. Louis. And, and that's literally what's, what, 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 what happens. But it also allows fish to swim up and if you, if you don't separate the two watersheds, there's really no technology that is 100% effective at, because of the high uh, rain conditions that we're seeing now. There's just, a, there, there's, there, there will be some way that the fish can get past it unless we separate it. And we, we don't have the political will to make that separation. I want to thank all of you for your great questions and your, your attention and patience here tonight. And let's also finally give a, a, a last round of applause to these great panelists. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Thanks for listening to the Sora Podcast. Our audio engineer and editor is Matt Crow. For more information about this episode, visit our website, cmnh.org slash Podcast. You can listen or download past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please join us again soon on the Sora Podcast for more conversations about science. I'm John Mangles.